This is Counter Stories, a show by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. Before we get started, we just want to say to our listeners here in the U.S. and abroad, those with ties and those without, that we stand in solidarity with the people of Ukraine. We're working on a show with an indigenous Minnesotan who's on the ground in Europe helping to bring supplies to the refugees who are fleeing the violent invasion there. This is Counter Stories. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of this podcast. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I state are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Don Eubanks, Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. So this week, we celebrated International Women's Day. Uh, and I want to give a special, special shout out to Luz um, for being the amazing woman that she is on this show and in real life and being a mentor and inspiration to me every day. And I don't want to cry, so that's all I'm going to say. Okay, so thank you, Luz. I love you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. My eyeballs just kind of <laughs> went... Um... <laughs> Got really big. I didn't expect that one. So <laughs> you deserve well, it. You deserve all of it. Uh, Clee ain't wrong, and I want to. I want to yes. join in and say the same thing. Oh. It's 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 powerful to have um, big sisters like you, uh, Luz, who who um, who inspires each and every day, and be able to say that I, that I have that, um, and don't have to reach all the way back in history to find somebody who 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 we can honor in that space. And so, kudos and, and shout out for show Ashe. You know, and if I was to jump on board, it, to to not just lose, you know, for me, she's not a big sister. She'd be a, a little sister. Um, but, you know, but. but Thanks for helping yeah, me out. Anytime, out lose, anytime, you know, just, 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 you guys always remind me. And, and uh, but, you know, but not just lose, but then I have to shout out with, for Haley too. And, and, um, you know, because Haley's yep. our producer and she pulls this all together. That's she right. keeps us all together. And, you know, she uh, comes up with all these amazing ideas and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a little like, you know, I'm a little closer to her mom's generation and, you know, the fact that she's got her own media group and she, you know, does her own thing. It doesn't compute in my mind, right? You know, I'm like her mom. And, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, so shout out to both you guys on, on International Women's Day. Thank you. You guys aren't going to get rid of me. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, we don't want to either. Don, I'm so glad you said that because I didn't want to interrupt and and, and uh, say that right back at, at Halee. Halee, you know, there, there are many reasons why I admire you and, and some of which I've shared with you and shared publicly in the past, not the least of which is your authenticity. You are authentic 24-7. <laughs> and that is really tough to do in any situation, but more so in the business that you're in um, and as a woman of color. I mean, we know the pressures that society put on us. And there is this double speak in the business world about being your authentic self. And, and my argument is simply always like, OK, there needs to be an asterisk on there because the asterisk then is except if you are mm-hmm. a woman of mm-hmm. color or an indigenous woman, right? If you are a BIPOC woman or a BIPOC uh, individual, Mm -hmm. right? Not unique to women, but because we're we're talking about International Women's Day in particular, 
it's, it's totally different, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we know that black women in particular are accused of being, you know, too aggressive mm-hmm. or, or uh, too strong or, or too direct or, you know, whatever, uh, a whole series. Latinas are, are accused often of being, quote unquote, too emotional, mm-hmm. um, right? Um, which by any other means would be interpreted as being passionate, right? right? If you are passionate about it, you know, you often hear and read articles about male white leaders love his passion for his work. Mm-hmm. Well, why can't we as Latinas get the same benefit of the doubt that our passion is what's driving our commitment to the work that we right. are pursuing, right? And again, it's that double standard. So Hali, you are a woman of many talents and a woman who has taught me many things along the way that we have known each other in the nine years or so. Um, and um, I look forward to many, many more years and learnings from you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah, my dad used to worry about me being so outspoken, saying, you know, you're you're young, you're a woman of color, you're a child of immigrants, and you're in an interracial, intergenerational marriage. And he's like, those are all going to work against you in the real world. And I remember saying, no, dad, those are going to work for me. Good for you. In the real world. Good for you. And and it has. And, you know, it reminds me, speaking of which, of, you know, Biden's pick for SCOTUS. She's using everything to mm-hmm. her ad- advantage. And yet she's being scrutinized by the media and by the far right. Um, she is a strong, powerful black woman. I, how do you guys feel about the the reaction that um, his pick has been? I, I mean, immediately when he said he was going to pick a black woman, like he said that from the beginning, right? It was going to be a black woman that he would nominate. Everyone immediately was like, you can't just decide that. That's so wrong. And then when he chose someone who really fit the bill, Judge, uh, Judge Kantaji Brown Jackson, she really fits the bill. Let me jump in here because you're exactly <laughs> right. Ahead. You know, and I've got some strong feelings about this one. Um, <laughs> not the least of which was, you know, the the social media uproar that that um, rightly so came up uh, right after President Biden's State of the Union speech. So while Tucker Carlson, who's a Fox News host and commentator, was commenting on President Biden's State of the Union speech, in which President Biden did reference his nomination of uh, Judge Jackson's um, position to the U.S. Supreme Court, Tucker Carlson's response was, well, we need to see her LSAT scores. So let me explain what an LSAT stands for. LSAT, spelled L-S-A-T, stands for Law School Admission Test. This is a test that takes less than two and a half hours. It measures an applicant's reading comprehension, logical reasoning, and verbal reasoning proficiencies. So it's basically the entrance exam to get into law school, right? (laughs) So everyone pretty much uh, for a certain period of time had to take it. There are some law schools uh, in the last five years who have relaxed that entrance exam prerequisite in the multiple decades, because I'm trying not to make myself look old, Don, in the multiple <laughs> decades that I've been practicing, not once has an employer asked me for my LSAT score. 
And if they did, I would say, I don't remember because I truly don't remember. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way the reason this is this is um, really troublesome is is multifold. One is typically speaking, when you have means financially to take a prep course, you do better. When you don't have the financial means or don't even know that a prep course exists, you are unlikely to take one. Case in point, myself. I was the first one to graduate from college out of my family. The first one to graduate from college basically in my entire network in my neighborhood in inner city Chicago in the barrio. And this holds true for the ACT as well as the LSAT. I literally showed up to the doorsteps of the building to take the exam uh, without preparation because I didn't know any better. I didn't have any mentors. I didn't know anyone who had gone through the process. And I didn't have any means. This is before the Internet became a thing, right? I didn't have any context by which to prepare myself. So I showed up, took my exams, did well, and off I went. I I didn't spend any time or consideration giving thought to that. I didn't know there was an LSAT preparatory course until I was already in law school. Hmm. And the way it came to be was uh, there were seven Latinos in my entering class. I was the only woman. We overheard some white students talking about a prep course. And uh, I said to the folks in, in the group, hey, folks, you guys know about this prep course? I, I, I don't even know what they're talking about. And not any one of us, any of the seven of us knew about the preparatory course. So then I started asking some other folks and the folks who did know without fail were white students and students of means, right? So when we think about Judge Jackson's LSAT score that just tested her capacity to get into law school, you know, I, I, I'm thinking that Tucker Carlson, and of course I'm inferring because I don't know what's going on in this guy's head, that he thinks that her her reputation and her scholarly achievements are untouchable. And so the only thing that he could possibly attack is his is her LSAT scores, because historically speaking, students of color don't have the means to take a preparatory course mm-hmm. the way mm-hmm. they would for LSAT. Mm-hmm. Right now, keep in mind. Keep in mind that when she was a senior in high school, she won a national oratory title at this National Catholic Forensic League of Championships in New Orleans, the second largest high school debate tournament in the entire country. Keep in mind that she graduated undergrad from Harvard University, magna cum laude. Keep in mind she graduated Harvard Law School again, cum laude, and was supervising editor of the Harvard Law Review, which I can tell you is no joke. Like, it is creme de la creme, right? (laughs) Now, keep in mind that Tucker Carlson, who has called her character in question, has a bachelor's degree, period. Nowhere near, and nowhere near the Ivy League schooling that Judge Jackson has. Most people haven't heard of the LSATs, so most people will think this is such a big deal that we right. need right. to know her score. I, I think it's right. important to name this pattern 
too. Not just the pattern of, of 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 checking the credentials of folks of color. We've we 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 keep hitting that. So that's definitely on the table for sure. Um, but that tactic is is actually one that's used quite often to derail conversations and racial discourse because there is no juice there. There's no meat there. You can't go get her LSATs. It's not something you can get, and it's not something that even is going to matter in the long run. And it's something that can be nebulous enough for me to create. Um, I just want to underscore what you were saying, Luz, um, that nebulous space of I can make a I can make something out of this because it's so inconsequential. And so I can create all That's the right. mystery and because nobody's going to make a huge data effort to try to rise up and, and, and tackle this one issue. So I'm going to use this to sail into the wind of conspiracy theory. I think that's that's a tactic we see over and over again. And unfortunately, folks are picking it up to your points uh, earlier. You've got, um, you know, re- you've got Republican um, um, senators who voted for her, voted for her mm-hmm. appointment to the second most powerful court in the country that are using things like this or, or insinuations like this to show reservation because she's such a stellar candidate. And it's part of that political uh, machination that yet again, here we go, works against uh, making inroads for folks of color at these high levels. That's right. And if you want Tucker Carlson to, you know, to really understand how nonsensical his point is, if I haven't already made my point, <laughs> is where was he when our previous uh, president, whose name I still um, don't find myself capable of stating, it's, it's number 45, as I refer to mm-hmm. him, mm-hmm. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, he was never asked for his LSAT. Right, nope. right, right. Amy nope. Coney uh, Barrett was never asked for her LSAT. Mm-hmm. All within the last two years, right, of appointment. You know, this again shows just how blatantly racist his approach is. Yes. And unfortunately, the way Anthony says, I mean, there are folks who are actually eating out of his hand for this. And he knows what he's doing. Yeah, He absolutely. knows what he's doing. People and are again, joking question- like... People are joking, saying, oh, you know, just for fun, he'll next thing he'll do is ask for a birth certificate. Like he's just, you know, they're going down this line of trying to make these black candidates un un American, unreliable. And not new. And not new. And Tucker Carlson, of anyone, are you kidding? I would be embarrassed if I was in his position that I, as someone who graduated from a mediocre college, a private college, right? Uh, and and only hold a BA, bachelor's degree. And I'm not trying to be elitist myself, you know? I'm just saying, keeping it real, right? Is mm-hmm. that, where do you get off of your high horse right. Right. questioning this Black woman's candidacy that is stellar education-wise as well as employment? You have You have no basis for this other than your racist approach. That's it. Man, we got lose riled up, y'all. I did. Sorry. I've been sitting on this for, for a bit. I'll also, so name the the pattern. This isn't the first time, not just this this commentator, but also um, you've had folks in big names, uh, in particular, black women getting into positions of leadership, of power, you know, their own shows and things like that to have their credential questioned. Um by by folks like Tucker Carlson. That pattern is not new. And unfortunately, it creates these barriers to to really important moments of advancement. How many 
how many women of color, indigenous women, have gotten to a particular place and then had to prove or do the credential dance, whether hinted at, right? Because you can hint at mm-hmm. it and insinuate it in a bunch of ways without, without quote-unquote, crossing a line. And it's hard to, to, to defend because we get stuck then in these arguments about credential while other folks sail in who don't compare in comparison. Um, but it, it's a pattern that 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 is it is pr- so present. If you if you really want to see it on display, go look at American History X, Spike Lee joint. Okay, in that there's a scene in there where the dad comes home and and it's a it's a it's a dinner table scene with the white family in there. And it, again, it comes up. He is he spins this whole tale about affirmative action hires and how there are there mm. are black officers that were hired who were not as qualified. And why would I have somebody less qualified watching my back? It's the same spin and narrative mm. that routinely is proven untrue, but stays persistent. And this is the same pattern over and over again yeah. that's still coming through. I'm glad you named that. Uh, there's actually a book that speaks to this really well, What Works for Women at Work, and it's, it's written by Joan Williams and her daughter. Um, both of them are attorneys. Uh, Joan Williams is a law professor, and um, it's prevalent for all people of color, actually, and indigenous folks, uh, which is a concept of prove it again, over and again, over and again in the workplace, right, is BIPOC folks, and she's got statistics up the wazoo, you know, mainly in the legal profession, but she's, she extends it beyond. I've, I've read some pieces uh, from her in the Harvard Business Review um, where people, BIPOC folks in particular, are constantly in the workplace being challenged to bro- prove their uh, credentials and their qualifications over and over again. And it's exhausting. And their white counterparts are not held to that same standard. That kind of even feeds into the next topic almost of like, you know, being held to to the same standards, right? Um, recently, as recently as this week, the Minnesota High School Sports League came out um, with a, a statement pledging to address the racist taunting and harassment that has been happening at sporting events. In particular, the incidences that have happened um, in in Prior Lake and and New Prague, um, their their response is really that they're gonna collect input, as I understand it. I mean, this is I feel like like this is coming so late after everything's been happening. We've been talking about this. How many shows have we touched on this subject already? And now we're just hearing from them. Yeah, you know, Hilly, I think that uh, these alleged incidents where members of the, uh, in, uh, you know, parents and, and students that were um, attending the game were making um, derogatory comments and then making ape-like so- uh, sounds. Mm. Mm. Situations with Robbinsdale girls basketball team and St. Louis Park's hockey team, all yes. in playing New Prague, have received and experienced the racial taunts and things like that from 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 attenders and that's not limited to those two i've been to games myself um in, in in a community space and have seen and heard some of the taunting that gets definitely quieter around the vicinity where us black folks are sitting but nonetheless you can hear it and it's a thing that's not isolated and this is this is one of the things that folks that some of the reporting you know irks me especially the responses is it does not do what the st louis park 
um, uh, athletic director did in his letter, and that is name the larger pattern and bigger issue. I still want to highlight that part of it where he's like, and I'm not having my children about to be your, your, um, you know, your learning, learning opportunity. Moment. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And that, and I, I think we touched on that a couple weeks ago when, when uh, the athletic director from St. Louis Park sent that letter down. Mm-hmm. And then I think Robinsdale followed suit with a similar type letter, but that was two, three weeks ago. And, but it took the spokesperson from the Minnesota high school uh, sports league almost a month to finally step forward and it and at least make a comment mm-hmm. to address it and mm-hmm. I think what was so disappointing is that instead of taking a stance one way or another against this uh, despicable type behavior that has happened at uh, New Prague and, and again I think uh, th- they were including Prior Lake because another note showed up on a um, on one of the girls' lockers, I believe that said, uh, "Get off our team, monkey!" And you know, and in the previous incident, it was a video that a uh, white teammate, the that young lady, had made. And so we have another incident at Prior Lake, but instead of taking a firm stance to address this racist behavior um, from teams being expressed against uh, some of the teams that come from the city to play, compete against them. The response was, well, we're going to put together a student group to, you know, who has a powerful voice to kind of look into this. And it angered me because that that is such a kick the can, typical kind of response we get when no one really wants to step in and make systemic change or to address the issue head on. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. And, and who's going to be on that, on the, in that group, that panel? Well, I mean, even beyond that, that individual had the opportunity to step up and to make a, uh, an affirmative comment, nipping this in the bud. And they elected not to, they sidestepped the issue. So, Don, I think what you're also getting to is just there's no ambiguity that these things happened, right? There is no ambiguity. There are kids that are recording it. There are uh, athletic directors who are validating, you know, the language. There are um, at some point, you know, multiple students attesting to these notes being left. There's that video that you referred to. There's no ambiguity to this, you know, and in my mind, what what should be happening is you disqualify them or get them out of the league, you know, for X period of time, mandate um, some kind of training or, you know, community service, whatever have you, right? Take immediate swift justice. And that's when you begin to see changes. This whole study things to death is another exercise of futility. There's conflict avoidance there, which of course we all know is is something that folks, uh, some folks in Minnesota really are, um, unfortunately, <laughs> that's their practice, right? Conflict avoidance, right? But at the expense of our children. You know, um, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of things here that, that um, <clears throat> 
Well, well, first and foremost, the memo itself, right? So the memo that was sent to principals and and athletic leaders and things like that of the different districts, um, you know, after after a what's a pretty vanilla opening statement, just restate policies that can be used to eject folks and to crack that and really put it and it puts it kind of back on the schools to to police their folks and here here is here is the here are the policies or the rules or statutes that that show that this is unacceptable behavior and all that stuff. Really, you know, really form, a reminder of the rules, all those kinds of things, right? Um, I don't know that there's an understanding of the depth of, of where this goes and how just putting it onto folks trying to control fans doesn't address um, the things that are coming out through the mouths of folks. Here, We even have one lawmaker saying, you know, making a mention as this was talked about, you know, I hope this doesn't mean that, you know, this isn't going to put the quabosh on, you know, just gentle ribbing that's already part of the game. It's like, you, you really don't get it. I don't see how, how, how folks are missing the seriousness of this, which is why two school districts are like, we're not going to pray you anymore. You know, often enough, this, this, this is learned behavior from home. Not always, but very often. That's my experience, right? I mean, folks begin to learn that this language um, is appropriate. They hear often enough their parents or relatives uh, spouting and spewing the same uh, racial hatred, and they adopt it as their own. So I, I would not presume that these children are acting um, out of context and without some sense of validation from their own families because the parents should be condemning the children and if they're not, it speaks for itself, right? I mean, you know, I've been to I, I've been to my nephews' games when they were when they were younger, like soccer games, even when they were like, you know, eight or nine, and parents were getting so angry and so riled up and so you know into and I, like I was like, oh my gosh, like these are eight and nine year old boys you know, doing a summer camp playing soccer. I mean, you know, Don, you you are an, a parent of athletes. I mean, what 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 experience do you have with this? I mean, do parents really get so uh, in, into the sport that they forget all of their morals and manners? Um, you know, I generally, you know, I think there's a difference. Um, you know, I I think there's a difference in the sport. I think, you know, parents as a parent of a of a of um, two kids who both were heavily involved with sports. Yes, as a parent, we get emotionally charged. But as a parent also, we also don't holler out. I mean, you know, holler at players or whatever. We're there to support the team and we're there to support our child. Um, And I think it depends on a sport. Plus, you know, we live in a city where it's much more diverse. Um. And the teams that my son and my daughter are on were very diverse. And so I think that that helps, you know, when, when you, um, when I think of my own experience when I played sports and, and I think on, you know, when we talked about this letter that was sent and we, we, we kind of wrapped in some other things, you know, I have personal experience playing as a, on a hockey team at, in Minneapolis North in my sophomore year where I experienced so much racism, uh, name calling from other, you know, because I was at the time in 1969, I was the only person of color that skated hockey. 
that I remember playing in Minneapolis. And so I experienced that type of racial animosity from other players, other other teams' coaches, and from the refs. And I had no recourse. I mean, I couldn't complain to anyone. And uh it you know, and and my experience was that I quit playing hockey after my sophomore year. In fact, I never mm. skated again. Mm. And I was an avid skater. Mm. Um so it saddens me that we're here in in 2022, you know, um, I think what surprises me is that these incidences seem to be happening um, where for a while we haven't heard of or anything's been reported in, you know, years that I, I can't remember. There are probably always going to be some isolated incidences, but not something like this. And so instead of these things kind of going away, they're, to me, they seem to be rearing itself up again, much along the same lines that we just talked about in terms of this, this Tickle Carlson. I, you know, I've never even watched this guy's show, and I was not aware of the comment he made about uh, the, this potential judge, uh, Biden's pick. And, you know, it, I didn't say anything it, because it angered me. It's such, it, it's, it's such a low ball, um, typical racist way to try to come after us. And, and we're seeing these kind of incidences happening at a time where in my mind, I'm trying to reconcile how, how we're making all these, you know, we're supposed to be, reckoning with with the death of George Floyd and all this other yeah, I keep bringing that up and 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 I and it you know we're supposed to be looking at all this systemic racial change and it ain't happening folks I mean it just ain't <laughs> we still happening. got the overt stuff coming to us you know the yeah. only difference I see having been in this situation been on the teams playing teams outwardly this is not new for me one right uh and 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 two I mean it's it's uh, my daughter's getting ready to 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 do some um, some intramurals or some AAU ball um, as she starts getting in there. And part of the thing that you got trained on is how to deal with the racist little pot shots that, one, the other players may try to pull on you to get you to act up and get you off your game. But then, two, there's much more subtle you know, and less overt things that are done in these games to try to do to do these same things. I remember going to one game and a bunch of the folks on the opposing team were holding up report cards, you know, the fake report cards, insinuating that this team that's coming in is, you know, they're all dumb because they're coming from an inner city space. Mm-hmm. There are ways what? in which these, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. The, it gets yeah. it gets <laughs> real subtle and folks get real creative because they know I can walk online and just say, well, we just we were just making a joke. It wasn't racial at all, knowing full <sighs> well that it was a dog whistle that they knew and the other team knows. And so, you know, these these that's the great that's the, the the bigger systemic thing that we're not talking about, you know, because these are limited to the overt things. It's easy to talk mm. about the overt in your face things. If somebody's wearing mm-hmm. a clan hat, it's a lot easier to have to to, to be clear right, right. about the bad actor in there. It's a lot subtler in the way that it that it rolls out. Mm. There have been some really interesting. And then there's a lot of times where if we want to talk about the bullying factor in this, somebody's poking and poking and poking, pushing and pushing on all these 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 coded and veiled buttons and then when you finally stop 
and say, I've had enough, and you react, you're the one that mm-hmm. gets blamed. How many mm-hmm. fight? you right. don't know how many times I've been been there to watch a team that gets disqualified because they cleared the bench because of they got done dealing with all the racial racist BS that was happening. And the other team backs up like we didn't we didn't do anything. And their other crowd is like, what are you talking about? All of a sudden they're so aggressive over there when nobody has paid attention to the quiet and subtle poking that happened mm-hmm. the whole entire time. So there's a whole lot more to this than just the overt actions of, of one community. Yeah, but I also, yes. However, I also want to make the distinction that it has, it's not restricted to these overt uh, um, acts of racism is not restricted to a black and white. Um, if you remember when 45 was in office mm-hmm. and he um, had this anti-immigrant um, platform, there were teams chanting during games, go back to where you came from. When when athletes were, um, you know, of Latino heritage. Right. And whether it was in in one state versus another, I mean, this was happening on the regular across our country. And I remember that with such clarity. Uh, and then the other part is that they started throwing tortillas out at the players mm-hmm. as well, right? I mean, again, some really overt um, racist yes. actions. And in my mind, again, you know, that would be in violation of, of, of so many principles uh, with regard to um codes of ethics and expectation for teams that that you lead by example at that point you snatch that kid off or you snatch you know those um spectators and you understand what school they represent or supporting and you know you forfeit the game or whatever right you do that enough times then that's when you start to see change but if this goes unchecked the way it continues to uh, to do in, in in Minnesota, you know, it'll it, we'll just study it to death the way we we study everything else. I mean, we see it in national and international sports as well, right? I mean, the whole mm-hmm. Jeremy Lin story in, in the yeah. NBA, the amount yeah. of racism he faced being like the first, you know, really great Asian player um, in the NBA. You know, so when you see it in national sports. Maybe you feel like you can do it in your local sports. I, I don't know. And it's not limited to uh, just to your point, Luce, you know, the the many reports that we get of of native teams, teams of mostly mm-hmm. native students encountering um, folks doing doing tomahawk, um, you know, chants and jeers from the mm-hmm. stands, um, you know, covering their mouths and doing doing the quote unquote, you know, the, the war call. That's a, a, a racist epithet towards native folks. Um, you know, just trying to say, we're just trying to make noise while they're shooting free throws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have thousands of noise to make, uh, but that's the noise that you collectively came to playing uh, mm-hmm. uh, an all-native team, really. But there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's, there are these things that that get get poo-pooed, and then and then we don't we don't start facing them, and they have large long-term systemic issues um, that folks don't want to address or talk about. So why should I why should I be there for your entertainment if there's no protection mm. for my 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 identity? Right. Like that's not that's not going to work. Young people don't even understand, and I say young people, I feel so old, but like I didn't even understand like you know where all these sports come from. Like we think of lacrosse as like a white boy sport, right? Like a uh, but it, it it came from the indigenous community. You know, um, mm-hmm. for a very random time in my life, 
Um, I went to a lot of Minnesota Swarm games, the the mm-hmm. uh, professional lacrosse games, um, mm-hmm. with uh, my best friends who uh, my best friend who is Mohican and her dad. And we were big fans, and we'd always go to the games. And then there was always like an after party where the players would come out and the cheerleaders, and we'd always go to those and talk. And we had a um, Minnesota had a really good player, and he was indigenous. And so um, Leroy, who is is my friend's dad, was like always like we gotta go and talk to him, you know. And so we'd always go to these after parties, um, and the cheerleaders would come and they'd do these these trivia stuff. And if you answer a question right, you would get a prize. And so the the, the question was one time, well, you know, who who invented lacrosse? And Leroy was like, oh, yeah, I got this. I got this, right? And so he gets them and he's like, it was the indigenous people. It was, you know, Native Americans. And she said, no, that's wrong. It was the mm-hmm. French. I knew that was coming. <laughs> and he said, uh-uh, mm-hmm. honey, let me tell you. She was just like, I, I'm just saying what I'm told. Like, this was the fact sheet that the Minnesota Swarm gave me. And she's like, but you know what? I believe you. So here's the prize. And so we got the prize anyway. But it was just like in that moment of like, God, people don't even know, you know, where these sports come from. And then they think it's, it's just a white person's sport. And so then when they see indigenous people or black people or, or Asian, Latino folks participating, they think, oh, you don't belong. And, and and that's where the issue comes of, of belonging, right? Mm-hmm. Get off our team monkey. That kind of stuff is saying you don't belong. And so now it's come to a point in high school. And when you're in high school, you want to belong, right? I mean, that's the, the peer pressure of like fitting in. And so it's on so many levels of how that can mess with a young person's mind. Um, another thing that can mess with the young person's mind is disruption in school, which we are seeing here in, in Minneapolis. And we were able to avoid it in St. Paul with, with a teacher's strike. Uh, we've talked about this issue again, um, in several of our podcasts recently as well. Um, at the last minute, St. Paul public schools came to a tentative agreement. Uh, Minneapolis did not. And, and my understanding is that they're very far from getting to an agreement. Yeah, this and this is something that's crossing many different levels. I mean, even the governor weighed in, you know, and 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 um, you know, there's there's this issue one of just the amount of money that there is for school period, which is a part of of, of the challenge as well because these demands are coming at a time when both of these two districts are facing declining enrollment and cut millions of dollars in cuts, and yet now they have to contend with the, with an ask that that on on the superintendent side, and or at least on the school district side, you know, like there's no money now. St. Paul figured out something, but but on the same time, um, you've got folks in particular in both of the of the proposed strikes. Of course, Minneapolis is going forward now at the moment of this recording, and St. Paul has reached their agreement. Yes, um, but the educational support professionals were a huge part of it. Many of whom are paying less than less than. Um, the approved, you know, city living wage or- ordinances, right? Um, and so that's a huge part of, of, of this ask. There's huge questions and gains for uh, educational support professionals who in both districts and many school districts are the place where you're going to find the most diversity, period. And so- Anthony, can you got- clarify what, the, what that means, educational, educational support Staff? Yeah, educational support staff are your educational assistants, um, your folks who who may be one to one with a student in special ed, 
Um, these are our non-licensed folks who work in education system who who are really the backbone of a lot of the work that's that's done in 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 a lot of schools. Um, because they're the ones that are assisting teachers, they're assisting in in terms of supervision for 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 young folks, um, and and can do a whole lot of different things. And so, most districts they call them an EA or an ESP or mm-hmm. um, a, a, a TA, things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there, um, so competitive pay um, uh, equity in some of the healthcare. So there's some question about why they pay the same amount in premiums as folks who who are administrators or other roles that make a hundred thousand plus you know dollars a year. So so there's that's an ask that's demand from that bargaining group. And then of course there's the teachers asks who are asking for more mental health supports, more educators of color, smaller class sizes, um, and and then of course addressing the competitive pay. Um, and so those are just some of the asks and demands that are being made. And districts are basically saying, well, we don't have the money to even address it. And Minneapolis has not figured out a solution yet at the time, at the yet, and St. Paul. Um, but the smaller class size provision that they're fighting for is really, I, I wonder if that also is a dog whistle, because when you think about it, we have established and the numbers show that there's decreased enrollment. And so mm-hmm. you can't have both, you know, they're just, they're incongruent with each other unless there is higher enrollment in, in a select few schools, mm-hmm. but they're, um, one of their biggest provisions is across the board, right? And so they need to be clearer on that. Uh, and then I would be really interested to hear how our, um, schools in North Minneapolis or South where you've, North Minneapolis having a large black student population and uh, South Minneapolis, we have a high Latino student population, mm-hmm. certain segments of, of Minneapolis in South, not, not all. How they're doing in terms of their enrollment, but then also funding. We, we know that the funding formula for schools in Minnesota is per student. Um, and then it also is per tax base of where that school is situated. Um, and then it's also if a student has special needs, there's a bump for that student in terms of funding. Mm-hmm. And if that student has um, English language learning um, needs, there's an additional increase associated that follows that student, right? So you you take a student and you have all of these different purses over their heads, if you will, that lead to the ultimate funding formula for that student and therefore collectively for the school. Um, and that's been a big problem because historically speaking, the neighborhoods I just referenced uh, have a lower tax uh, base in terms of being able to fund the schools, right? So less money coming in already. So equity is an issue there from mm-hmm. an economic standpoint. And then secondly, they're unable, because they have less money in the pot, unable to hire the more quote unquote experienced uh, teachers uh, who then can help with the complexity of, of just making sure that the curricula is being taught the way it should be taught, right? So then you've got our low-income neighborhoods and low-income families and students suffering the most, yet again, disproportionately, financially because of the funding formula, but also the inability to attract more experienced 
teachers because uh, the funding base for that school doesn't allow for for them to pay that rate. And then also there's an unwillingness. And I say that factually because the former superintendent, um, Superintendent Johnson was a good, is a good friend of mine. And she had uh, let us know during her tenure how when she would have multiple vacancies at Lucy Laney or some of the other schools in North Minneapolis, she couldn't get any seasoned teachers to apply for those jobs because, quote unquote, it was too hard for them to do that. Well, she couldn't and, attract teachers there. Go ahead. And and well, just in, in part of that, there's some 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 complicating factor pieces that aren't necessarily across the board, right? So in terms of 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 pay versus the work that has to be done, right? So caps on classroom sizes, smaller classroom sizes has been a thing that folks have been fighting for for a long time. You know, work seeing both an administrative level and and in the in the teacher level, you know, if you can, you try to have as small class size as possible. It's more attractive for parents um, and it allows you to to spread out some, um, you know, certain challenges and things. One of the things that the teachers are speaking about, at least in terms of Minneapolis, is that those caseloads and those sizes have continued to just creep up and up and up. And so, you know, you get somebody, even if they are experienced, you know, according to to what, what folks are saying on the ground, even if there's experience and knowledge and a long time of having worked and understanding expertise, I still now have to apply that to um, so, so large a, a amount of folks that the burnout rate is, you know, is, 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 is astronomical. And so it's so much easier to go in and, and compete for uh, teachers if I'm a different uh, company and I want to have somebody who I know has a good work ethic and I know can do the job really well. Teachers can do, they, they've got a lot of skills that they're trained and trained to do. And I can come in there and offer you one, a wage that fits what you're going to do. And two, um, one that carries with it a whole lot less stress. And so I think those caps and, um, you know, both on terms of caseloads, um, you know, and in terms of classroom size are, are a thing um, that I think makes sense absolutely as a demand. The challenge there is where are you going to get the money from? And I think that's where Minneapolis is stuck because they have something that is absolutely true on the spot of the demand and the limitations are also true. And how do you find a middle ground in that one? That just that one seems bleak. I was surprised that St. Paul did it, to be frank. That it is a very complicated um, issue. I think that after years of of hearing how how children of color, particularly black children, success rate, you know, depending on on their zip code, and also uh, negative experiences of indigenous children in, in Minneapolis public schools, and in this whole idea that um, uh, they don't get the encouragement and empowerment they need to succeed on top of the discussion that I think we had a few weeks ago where we were looking at the emphasis to try to retain teachers of color and and indigenous teachers who tend to have been more recently hired. And with the seniority structure of most unions, um, those on the lower end of that seniority rung are the ones who tend to be uh, let go. And so, you know, the union is also struggling with that. I mean, if they're trying to retain more teachers of, of color, it means that the, the, the teachers union itself has to look at how it's structured. You're talking about structures that have been in place for so long, but sometimes they need to go because it has a tendency 
to uh, thwart any attempts to make change. I agree totally with Anthony in that assessment that I think smaller class sizes, having more support staff for mental health um, issues, um, but I also believe that uh, Minneapolis superintendent and Minneapolis schools doesn't have the cash to do that. And unfortunately, you know, it's like when I worked at the state um, and there was a strike, um, strikes work after a while because the, the money that's saved, unfortunately, the money that's saved by not paying salaries during the duration of a strike becomes oh. that becomes <laughs> that funding to turn around. And to I hadn't even thought up. of that. Wow. And so, you know, and then you throw on the fact that uh, we have what? How many billions of dollars of surplus? Nine point two billion. So you know, Luz, Luz made that point. Uh, you made that point earlier. You know, just when you bring in the tax base piece of it, because we forget about local levy. So my my ability to pass a point zero 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 something percent levy in certain areas gets you almost as much money as passing a one percent levy in 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 an area like Minneapolis. So so there's. There is huge disparity in what I can choose and elect as a local community because of local control and other things like that. Not not docking it, but I'm just saying that we can get together as a community, and if we have you know more money to do so, we can balance the scales for our needs in ways that others uh, might not be able to in the same way. And so that disparity leads to differences in in the ability. I mean, if you go out to certain places, you class size this class size thing isn't an issue in the same way. Because we are are uh, be- just because there's there's either less kids for the for the baseline coverages that we that we have for our per pupil formula, and the local community has elected to add a certain amount of money to keep the schools a certain way, and so you know those are some of the complications that are also in the mix as folks have to try to figure out how do we do this. Now I am fully 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 clear that fifteen to eighteen dollars an hour is not. Um, doesn't even come close to the amount of work. Having been an EA myself, mm-hmm. I've worked that job. All right, that job does not pay <laughs> pay for the for the work that you actually end up doing. Um, and 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 I would say the same for the teachers. And so I think I think you know it's a hard place to be in. But in this case, I think the the teachers and the EAs are absolutely true in that they're underpaid and that they should be paid at a certain level um, and have a certain level and expectation in terms of of job work work rate in this space. But I've also been on the administrative side to say that's all well and good, and I think everybody would agree that if we had the money, we could do that. But they ain't the money to do it. But yes, however, what what the real expense here is the damage to our students and our our BIPOC families, right? Is that mm-hmm. the narratives that we're hearing um, don't take that to account? I mean, keep mm-hmm. in mind, and I know you know this. But as a refresher, we're still in a global pandemic, right, that has desperately hurt our BIPOC families in terms of COVID infections, in terms of job loss, in terms of lack of child care capacity, you know, being unable to afford it. I mean, there's a long list and um, academic performance and gaps in our BIPOC children, their capacity to stay on track academically in terms of their capacity to learn the material because 
They also have disadvantage in terms of access to computers at home, access to the Internet at home, mm-hmm. access to quiet space at home. You know, mm-hmm. when when all of our families were um, without jobs or or having to uh, have the children at home because the vaccines weren't out or the infection rates were were above five percent. And, and therefore, the mask and the lockdowns were still in place, right? So if we think about the totality of this, the real harm is being borne by our BIPOC students and our families. And that, mm-hmm. to me, supersedes anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, by way of comparison, I've got a good friend who's in a leadership in the C-suite uh, in St. Paul Public Schools. And the average... Uh, salary for a teacher there is 85000 Now, you know, most folks will agree that $85,000 is a pretty good salary, right? I mean, we're not talking financial hardship. I don't know how that compares to Minneapolis, so I, I'm not even going to begin to speculate. What I do know, though, is the data that I have seen with regard to the impact of this pandemic on our BIPOC families, particularly women of color being the mm. primary child care taker mm. and having to leave the workplace because they didn't have any other choice or mm. still struggling to be in the workplace and not having care for their children at home um, and being unsupervised because they can't go to school. So that to me is the hardest part of it. And I know mm. several organizations like YWCA, YMCA have opened their doors saying like, oh, if, you know, if the teachers go on strike, you guys can come here. But that's also temporary. So even though mm-hmm. there is like this small solution right now, I mean, we don't know how long this strike might might last. And they're not offering they're not offering tutoring or, you know, replicating the same classroom environment for our children. Our children need extra help academically right now they need to be learning rather than observing Mm. that there's the teachers and others are on strike you can be on strike after we 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 address the needs of our children there's a standard of law in all the courts in minnesota when you're talking about children whether it's in family law case a divorce or paternity or child custody or juvenile court it is what is in the best interest of the child. This strike is not in the best interest of our children from BIPOC communities. And that's that's my point. At least here in certain places in St. Paul, I've seen gas at $3.99 a gallon. Mm-hmm. You throw that in the mix. And I'm sorry. You know, I'm yeah, and I'm I got I, friends in I got friends in other countries that are like, yeah, yeah, gas is up everywhere, y'all. That y'all ain't getting no bully pulpit on the on crying <laughs> over some gas. But it's not a bully pulpit, it's I'm just saying this is an additional variable that we can add mm-hmm. on to the list mm-hmm. that Luz just went through. The list the of hardship. hardship, you know. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and so when you you, you know, when you add that all together. And then, like like uh, Hilly said, the the why was offering some of these programs for free, right? First come, first serve, limited programs. But from what I was hearing on on on, on different news channels, that they were only going to be able to take like up to forty five or fifty kids. So um, again, those very same things that lose lose listed in terms of lack of mm-hmm. access for children of color also exist for those parents. 
And from every news report I've seen on, on TV so far about those free programs, when they showed the kids playing there, they were all white. So, <laughs> again, we see that discrepancy of who could access it, who mm-hmm. could go online, who, you mm-hmm. know, and and so the discrepancies even exist in those supports, mm-hmm. I believe, were set up to try to target those populations to help during this time period and, um, and woefully falling short even in that attempt. Well, you guys, we had we didn't even get up to all the topics we wanted to get to on this. This that's a grab, grab bag, bag episode for you. <laughs> um, I, I want to thank all of you guys for for your insights and you know there these topics that I just I don't know a whole lot about as far as like athletics and and school systems and I learned so much from you guys in each of these episodes and all the ins and outs of all the stuff that's happening that doesn't uh you know directly affect my everyday life so so thank you guys for that this has been another episode of counter stories i'm halili owner of the other media group and producer of counter stories i'm anthony galloway pastor of saint mark ame church in duluth minnesota and senior partner at dendros group luz maria frias deputy attorney general with the state of minnesota my comments and opinions are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer and I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. Thanks for joining us. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>